Welcome back to the Rockonomics Podcast. I'm your host, Dill, and I apologize for the two-month hiatus. We ran into a bit of a dry patch where we had some guests who initially said, yes, go MIA, or just have to put me off until a later date when their schedules freed up. So it took a little bit longer than I anticipated, but we're back at it. We have some great new guests lined up to talk about their personal journeys in and around the music biz. My first guest of the season, if I can call it that, more like episode clusters, so maybe it's better to say my first guest of this cluster is pop culture writer Drew Fortune. Drew has written for Rolling Stone, Spin, Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair to name a few. But above all that, he's been to Paul Westerberg's house. That alone could be an entire episode, but we also touch upon his experiences with Dean Ween, Ryan Adams, Sean Combs, and discuss his book in progress called No Encore, which documents the most infamous gigs as told by Wayne Kramer, Robert Pollard, Alice Cooper, and countless others. So without further delay, this is how it all went down. Um, I wanted to start much like last time, so... Last time we started, you know, I had, I had kind of stumbled upon you at the Tommy Stinson show, you yes, know, s- s- you know, followed you through the tag to see who you were and found out you were with Rolling, St- you know, uh, a well well known journalist with Rolling Stone, Playboy, Esquire, all those. Um, and through my research, saw that you did that Paul Westerberg piece. Yes. So I want to I want to start with that story because it's such a great story. You know, actually oh, yeah. going to his house and stuff. But let's go back to like you. So you, that that was you pitching it to Spin at the time, right? Yes. So um, I have been trying to get Westerberg first story um, as uh, basically since I started writing. But you know, growing up the ranks, it's like each place you start writing for, each new place gives you access to more people. So I think I just wasn't at that level that I needed to be at. And once uh, I was doing stuff for Spin, I figured, you know, what the hell. And uh, this guy, Darren, who's uh, his manager, he's a great guy. <laughs> you know, but he's honestly, he told me so many times. I pitched him so many ridiculous things. I pitched him a uh, documentary on <laughs> Paul Westerberg, which was reaching back in 2013 or something. Uh, and he would always just say, yeah, man, it sounds great, and I'll I'll bring it to Paul, but he is, you know, semi-retired. Right. I'm like, yeah. And then all of a sudden, the reunion happened. Um, I didn't even bother because I knew they weren't really doing much press. Right. But, you know, I saw the mats uh, in L.A., and it was just awesome. And um, I had always been a bigger f- – I don't know bigger, but um, I got into Westerberg via his solo records in uh, the early 2000s, I think when – Stereo Mono came out, I think that was 2001. Um, so anyway, I kind of came in backwards. I, right. But to your defense, you're, you're a younger man than me, and it's probably it was probably playing and relevant at the time that you were hearing yeah. it. Is that fair to say? Well, more or less. I mean, I, I don't think that record got much airplay, but right. it was the first concrete thing of his that I'd ever had. Right. I didn't start with Let It Be, you know, the replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that kind of got me on that track, and then uh, – I sort of worked backwards to the replacements. So, yeah, I'm just a huge Westbrook junkie. That's the best way to put it. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I, when the story I pitched Spin was um, uh, pretty aggressive in the sense that, hey, I want to go to Paul's house. I know about the basement where he records all this stuff, <laughs> and I just want to hang out. Um, so it worked nicely because he had just started a 
I don't want to call it a side project, but it was a project with Julian Hatfield right. of, you know, Julian Hatfield three and the Lemonheads. And, uh, so that ended up sort of being, um, the thing that we could work on with Paul. Right. And it was, uh, Hey, let's, let's make the, I don't care is the, the basis for the interview, but we really want to talk about your solo work. And he thought that was a good idea. So, uh, it got greenlit after months of trying, um, so Spin gave me the okay, Westerberg gave me the okay, and I started about a 22-hour road trip to uh, Edina, Minnesota, where he lives, Right. in the dead of winter. It was uh, like February 7th when I left, and of course, I got socked with this massive blizzard once I hit like Wisconsin right. into Minnesota. Um, Were you coming from South Carolina? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I rented a car, and... Uh, you know, I was cruising, and as I'm driving, I, I started to get nervous because I was asking questions about where we should meet. Originally, it wasn't going to be at his house, but at least I was going to meet him in person. Right. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Darren kept asking me, um, can you think of a place where Paul can smoke that's not a bar where you guys can do this? Granted, I don't know anything about Minnesota, yeah, really. Exactly. Um, Let me Google it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking like radios, or I was thinking like record stores. Where I'm sure he would get mobbed. Uh, yeah, then my honest thought was a VFW all. Right. But as a freelancer now for Spin, I mean, there, you've got no way of calling back to the home office and be like, you got to find me a venue to you know talk to Paul. That's not an option at this point. No, right? no. I mean, I probably could have called and whined and said, hey, I'm on the road. I can't do it right now. Right. Anyways, yeah. So it came down to D-Day. It was the morning of the interview. I still didn't know where we're meeting. So I just drove to Edina, <clears throat> excuse me, which is a pretty cool, um, small Minnesota town. Uh, and I just sat in a coffee shop because I, uh, I sort of knew where Paul lived mm -hmm. just because a gas station clerk told me. <laughs> it's, I, it's funny in a town like that. It's like, you know, the legendary yeah, Paul Westbrook. Because yeah, I, I stopped in and I think it was February 13th. It, yeah, it was February 13th. And I said, I was just all jacked up. I'm like, hey, I'm going to interview Paul Westerberg. And the clerk just sort of, you know, she was tattooed, and she just kind of smiled. She said, cool, give him this for me. And it was a like a heart cookie. Nice. <laughs> so I held on to that. And then, yeah, just sat in the coffee bar, just getting more and more kind of nervous because the blizzard was getting worse. So I knew I was just going to be stuck there, ostensibly. Um, so finally, Darren called and said, uh, yeah, you can just go straight to Paul's house, um, which was awesome. Because he, he doesn't have a car. Yeah. And I didn't know that at the time. He doesn't have a car. doesn't have a license. I mean, I think he was really just freaking out that he had agreed to do this thing. Right. <laughs> so, uh, oh, man, this is embarrassing. I forgot all about this. Um, so his he has kind of a real steep uh, driveway. It's not big. It's just super steep. Um, <laughs> so I figured, well, I'll just pull in there. And I started to slide back, and I ground into um, the snow he had shoveled on the side. No. And so I was making a, quite a racket. like So he must have heard me. But anyway, when I showed up, I was just kind of sheepish. And, you know, he kind of smiled. like, yeah, you fucking made it. All right. <laughs> and I didn't even talk about the car. <laughs> what was his, I mean, it, it, like a middle-class neighborhood? Like was it a, like a cul-de-sac? Yeah, you know. uh, yeah kind of upper middle class. Um, I'm trying, I mean, his house is big, but not, it's still modest. Right, right. Um, it's kind of ex – well, it was a bit more modern than I would expect for him, mm -hmm. which was cool. 
Uh, it was just like a lot of white walls and it felt like a lot of space inside. Okay. And he had like Coltrane playing and lightly in the background and uh, he had his grand piano set up right when you walk in, right to the right. Cool. Um, so he kind of, you know, uh, kind of noodled around on there and uh, it was awkward just saying like, okay, man, let's just do this yeah. because he'd kind of walk around and show me things and then smoke a cigarette like, oh, yeah, just give me, give me a minute. <laughs> So once we got going, it ended up being about three and a half hours of tape that I got. Right. And we got real good. I mean, we were, I, you know, I'd heard he's kind of squirrely in interviews. That was sort of the legend, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, he was, he was serious, but, uh, really funny, um, self-deprecating and it was just real cool. Yeah. And then you saw the, you saw the basement, which I feel like is kind of like a Mecca that yeah. you know, this is where. Yeah, he's okay. got all those basement tapes, like Dylan. So I, I literally just had to say, "Can I see the basement now?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure." <clears throat> so it's cool. Uh, it's basically about the size of this room that we're in right now. Okay. Um, I don't know what the metrics are. But... It's by fifteen by fifteen. Yeah, there you by go. 20 maybe. So he had uh, another piano and just a bunch of recording. You know, I'm not a gearhead, but it was just littered with wires. Like I was so afraid I was going to trip over something. <laughs> and there was spray paint. Uh, just oddly painted in the room. And I'm sure Paul did that. Yeah. But you would think maybe it was his son, but there's spray painted walls, kind of like graffiti. And uh, he played me Sad Go Round, which is a track he'd been working on. I still don't think he's released it. Okay, that's interesting. It was sort of a companion piece to Merry Go Round, the replacement song. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we did that. Uh, came upstairs. I asked if he wanted to give... I need to bring him to town because, you know, it was, it was bad. <laughs> I need there. anything. Yeah. And like, he couldn't ride his bike and he's like, nah, I'm good. Um, did he play it all? Like you said, he was on the piano or did he pick up a guitar? Did he strum anything? Oh, uh, that was no. And then it, well, at the, at the very end, he had like three guitars in the living room where we were talking. Mm-hmm. I finally said, can you just play me something? And he just says like, oh, no, dude, I, you know, I can't remember anything. <laughs> like I don't, you know, like, just let any, me help you. Yeah. So he said, "All right, you you call out a song." I think I said, "Kiss me on the bus," which is odd because it's not one of my favorite right, songs. Yeah. I just figured it's <laughs> kind of simple. Um, and he's yeah, he kind of indulged, but I honestly think he forgets. Um, right. Yeah, he probably you know just gets it going for tours and then it's just gone. Sure. Like said. So finally, I just knew. I had just read. Um, why am I forgetting his name? The book? Yeah. Yeah, The uh, Trouble Boys. Trouble Bob, Boys. Bob yeah, Mayer. Bob Merritt. Yeah. Uh, I had just read that. Um, so Was that out at the time? I think it had come out that fall. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I knew Johnny B. Good was just always a staple for Paul. So I said, all right, Johnny B. Good. And he just he nailed that, yeah, which course. was fun. That's probably the deepest, his deepest <laughs> cut. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what were you like leaving? Were you just on cloud nine? Did you have to come down? Um. Well, yeah. Or are you, I, or you more worried about, like, now I'm in the middle of a snowstorm? Well, that and, was true because you know. we talked about it. <clears throat> and I said, well, I'm not going to try leaving town for a couple of days. Like, do you want to do something? <laughs> and, yeah, he's like, yeah, let me call you. Never called. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing was uh, Juliana Hatfield was supposed to be in that weekend. And they were going to be recording. Right. With Josh and Freese. Josh, yeah. So I actually interviewed Juliana Hatfield last week for my book. And I just threw it out there. I don't know where they're at today, but I said, you know, you were supposed to be in Minnesota at Paul's house when I was there. She said, what? And I said, yeah, I mean, I did this whole interview with him and the snowstorm screwed you up and you couldn't get in. Did she recall it? 
Well, she said, <clears throat> I might have been there. I might have just been hiding out. I'm like, well, How funny we would that have been? We didn't go to the upstairs bedroom. <laughs> I don't think she was there, but. That's funny. Because he did get a Valentine's package right as I was leaving. And he goes, oh, it's a little Valentine from Jules. That's funny. Well, good segue into the book, which mm-hmm. uh, you're you're currently in the middle of. Um, I, I've seen you you're calling it no encore. Described Exclamation as, point. as the craziest, druggiest, most embarrassing <coughs> gig, gigs. Yes, sir. How? What was the impetus of of that idea for the book? Um, I guess this probably dates back to 2013. Um, I think I had just been fishing with Dean Ween. My dad and I. Um, went down to Key West with him. Right. And, you know, he's just full of crazy stories. Uh, oh, yeah. So I think I said, what's your craziest? Because maybe I was going to pitch it somewhere else. And he gave me this great story about um, Busta Rhymes and uh, Ween playing. Ween essentially opening for Busta Rhymes in 96. And okay. the times, or uh, Busta ran very late setting or sound checking all his stuff. So it was essentially two student councils at this college in Vermont. Uh, one of the councils voted Ween, right. and the other did Busta Rhymes. So you essentially had warring factions here right. of, of fans. Uh, so when Busta, Busta took so long to set up, uh, Ween it just ate into Ween's set time. Right. So the doors opened, and it was all Busta fans. Right. And Ween was like, all right, uh, we're Ween. <laughs> And uh, it, it obviously just didn't go well. Um, and they played a real gnarly set. Like, the more agitated the crowd got, the more gnarly they started getting there. Right. Yeah, Mickey said, Mickey's Dean Ween. His real name's Mickey. They were throwing change, chairs, you know, whatever. And he got hit, and uh, he got nailed right in the balls with a 40-ounce, and he went down like a souffle. And, yeah, this, this woman up front just you know, uh, did the finger motion come here? So he sort of crawled over to her and she said, motherfucker, you gots to go. <laughs> <laughs> so he stood up and he said he took it like a challenge and they just started playing even more psych rock. But anyway, Busta never even made the gig. That was the funniest part. Oh my God. Yeah. So his, I don't, I don't know how, but they all ended up at the same hotel room in Vermont. And so <clears throat> Mickey was playing pool around 3 a.m., and these guys come up and they said, "All right, you know, table's ours now." And he said, "No, you got to play me to get it." So then Busta showed up. I guess I don't know why. I guess they got to Vermont. It was way too late, so he decided to just stay there. Right. And Busta just loved the whole story and just you know thought it was so <laughs> funny and uh, just bought, bought out like all the champagne at the bar, and they just hung out playing pool um, all night. That's so funny. Yeah. So long story short. Uh, Mickey Mickey uh, wrote the story, <clears throat> wrote it out, sent it to me, and then I just thought yeah, I should start doing more of this for maybe a column or something. Yeah, and uh, yeah, then I got a few more, and it was just a long process. A lot of things happened uh, between in the five years since then. But once I got serious about it, um, you know, writing a proposal just seems like such a such an uphill climb, right. you know. But it's really not that bad. <laughs> well, I figured if you get a couple of these going, and yeah. once somebody sees the, you know, a few of the stories, it's like 
It's right. You know, I I get where you're going. I I mean, me personally, I love the idea. I can't wait to yeah, thanks. to have the book, see the book. Yeah, a lot of the art, all the artists seem to love it, and all the publicists are like, "Oh, that's great." <clears throat> but yeah, so once I got the proposal, this is kind of boring stuff. But I got an agent, and uh, you know, we shopped it around, and we just found a home for it. So uh, it's been real fun. It doesn't feel like work in a way, right? Like all of a sudden on the drive over here, I've got uh, Stephen from Third Eye Blind coming up this Friday. Oh, cool. I just did uh, Mark Foster from Foster the People yesterday. How'd that go? Really good. I didn't know what to expect from him. I mean, I know Pumped Up Kicks, the song right, for sure. Right. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, they've definitely become more kind of polished and pop. Yep. So I, I, I just didn't know about the guy. But he was real funny and really kind of, I don't know, do people still say blue? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, I get the he gist. swore a lot and was yeah. just got my references, and it's funny. So it was fun, yeah. It's funny. I pitched. They came through town. I pitched him <laughs> because he was a jingle writer. Was an he ad jingle writer? Yeah, no shit. Yeah, huh? But, we didn't uh, get into those days. Yeah. He told me he was delivering pizza. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. back in the days in L.A. Right. Um, <clears throat> what about? Uh, let's go through a couple of the. What about Juliana's? Was hers? Uh, um, <clears throat> she had one of those ones where I kind of had to coax it out a little bit. Right. Um, again, she seemed kind of oddly nervous in a way. Is anybody else writing? Like you said, uh, um, Dean wrote his, is anybody yeah. else writing them or are you, you're just kind of doing the interviews and, you know, kind of right. recording well, them? Well, Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices wrote his own. Um, he just doesn't do many interviews. So right. I was just real thankful that he wrote something. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely leaving that out there in case people are just more comfortable doing sure. it. Sure. I think the Black Lips are hopefully going to write their own, <laughs> so they tell me. Um, but no, I mean she was very sweet, and she just didn't have a you know a killer story. A lot of them are like, oh, sound problems. Right. I almost want to say when I pitch now, like, please no stories about the monitors being bad. Yeah. It just doesn't translate that well. Yeah, it's got to so, be your 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 soul is exposed out there. Yeah. You know, it's bigger than sound, you know, bad sound. Right. Well, that was kind of like Foster the People's one. It was a, their first, first Coachella gig. But, I, yeah, it made it all up to – it was basically him saying this was our start before we even really started. If that gig had gone bad, like, I bet none of this really would have happened. Right. So that was cool. You know, I got that. Juliana's was um same kind of deal. It was just a big show, her first record showcase. And, yeah, she, she just started out playing the – I think she just totally botched the first chords or something. <laughs> but then we got, you know, I wanted to know about, um, oh, and she's also a bad stage diver. That was her other thing. <clears throat> she's, she just had horrible stage diving experiences and <laughs> she's just bad at it. She's like a, uh, like a cat who's not that slick. Agile, yeah. Yeah, just kind of misjudges, <laughs> and, you know, landed on the rail and then oh, kind of ended up kicking someone in the face. So those were funny, but, uh, yeah, we were talking about – I didn't know if she was um, kind of crazy like Evan Dando in the in the Lemonheads. Right. Party crazy, drug crazy. Mm-hmm. She said, no, that never touched a drug. <clears throat> but I was with uh, Evan for his, you know, very intense drug using. And uh, I don't know. That was – I found that interesting because that whole scene at the time was so heady and just – Yeah, no, totally. Like dark with drugs. <clears throat> Well, it's Especially funny. One of, one of the people I, I noticed was the guy from the Dandy Warhols. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the thing. Like, what what was his story? It had to been had been drug related. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
it was basically, um, I think they were on tour with the Jonestown somewhere in the Midwest, and he had just gone through a horrible breakup. Oh, it's it's coming back to me now. He he went on for about forty minutes. I got a lot of stuff, <laughs> and I haven't transcribed him yet. But uh, you know the the song "Not If You Were the Last Junkie on yep. Earth." I always thought that was like a slam against um, Anton Newcomb, the lead singer of the Brian Jonestown mm-hmm. Massacre. But no, it was about this uh, druggy girlfriend <clears throat> who that had just ended. They had just broken up. He couldn't be with her. She would show up in the rain with a bunch of rigs. Trying to, you know, use, and <clears throat> he had never done heroin. So, on this kind of bummer tour in the middle of, like, Iowa or something, I think some of, I don't want to get this wrong, but certain people were going into, uh, like, a truck stop bathroom right. to shoot up. So, there was about four of them in a stall, and Courtney just said, all right, you know, why not? Why right. don't I try it? So they're all getting ready to go, and I think someone was someone was going to um, tie him off and shoot him. Uh, when some like real redneck guy came in and said, "What the fuck are you boys doing in the stall? Get out of there!" So he said, "You know, it was uh, I really could have gone down a vicious path." Wow. Yeah. So did that, did did he ever dabble? Or that, right, was no, one, never that was his one opportunity, and he. And he Passed it up. Yeah. Or luckily. Uh, so he said that was simultaneously like the worst and the best. Right. <laughs> tour gotcha. moment of his. Now, are these a mix of, you know, there's a lot of great people, you know, uh, Mark Mothersbaugh and uh, Pavement, Guar, Andrew W.K., Wayne Kramer. You know, you mentioned Robert Pollard, Alice Cooper, Shirley Manson, you know, many, many, many. Is this all a mix of um, are you meeting these people? Are they phoners? Are you, you know. Word is out. Are people calling you or pursuing you to be part of the book? Yeah, I do have publicists trying to bring me their artists. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I now have to get uh, – I mean, I always knew I needed to get the craziest right. to, to begin with. That's why I got Guar and Gigi Allen's brother. And, <laughs> you know, I kind of did all those guys. So Because, yeah, if you get sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, clean-cut artists, mm-hmm. a lot of it's the sound problems or right. – just some little flub or something and i'm like no no i need the gory yeah blood and guts so yeah i sort of have to mentally think what's gonna work but sometimes i'm surprised um by people i didn't think would have crazy stories and they do um any examples that come to your head yeah lou barlow um from dinosaur jr okay sebado uh you know i'd always known of him i never knew he had much of a drug history i think i thought he was just a big pothead um but yeah, his story is one of the craziest. Uh, Sebado was set to play, I think it was Glastonbury Festival in England. Um, maybe it's a Reading Festival. But anyway, it was a big showcase for Sebado. Um, you know, Dinosaur Jr., he wasn't with them anymore. This was kind of his moment to make it, here's my new thing, you know? And he was being touted as kind of the next big thing. Um, Kurt Cobain had just died, and I think he was kind of being tapped to be that guy, right. sort of. Uh so anyway, <laughs> he did a big signing, um, autograph signing with Pavement that day. And he said, I don't really drink much, but I just started putting away tall boys. <laughs> or, you know, so it's like the British right. big tall boy things. <clears throat> so when they were done with the signing, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, I was, I was drunk, man. I couldn't, I couldn't really walk a straight line. <clears throat> and their big showcase shows in about an hour and a half. So he met up with some Australian guys. I don't know what band it was. He wouldn't tell me. Funny. But they said, I might, you know, come into our our tent. 
<laughs> so he went in there and uh, they were chopping up speed, and he had never done speed. So they gave him a big line and said, "Oh yeah, you know, you'll be rising after this. This is chopping you up." <laughs> and so he said it was like a big pinky-sized line, and he just got so geeked out. He could, barely, you know, was, everything was tightening. Right. He, he couldn't. He's like, I couldn't even form chords. <laughs> so he went up on stage and he's like, I was drunk, totally speeded out, and I think within the first five minutes he just smashed his guitar on stage because he couldn't really play. Right. And then he kind of went on a weird monologue. Oh God. Yeah, something about how <laughs> it's, it was like a sixth grade talent show, and he <laughs> he totally bombed. He told that story, and then Courtney Love in the background started going, "Hey, hey!" Like yelling at Lou. Right. And he's like, what? She's like, you can't do that. <laughs> he's like, well, you know, he wasn't talking to her, but I guess she had gotten upset that he smashed his guitar. Right. Because that was kind of a Kurt thing. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, yeah, then he had also cut himself when he smashed it. Like a chip flew up and smashed his head. So he's bleeding. Courtney loves yelling at him. He's totally freaked out <laughs> on drugs and, like, blew his big showcase. <laughs> this is – he's probably so thankful that YouTube and – smartphones with cameras probably didn't exist well i asked i'm like back in the dude day. is there footage of that he's like yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> or even recording like the the, the, the yeah you know, i think i did find a 28 minute clip the mix recording really yeah how funny oh no i don't think i sat with it but uh, you know yeah it does it's out there in the ether so what's next for that project how do you how much how much long how much longer do we need to wait huh, that's a good question um we're shooting for spring of 2019, and okay. the good thing is I'm allowed to be kind of flexible because, you know, certain – well, it, it's totally interview-based. So mm-hmm. it's not like me on a deadline, right. you know, where I could just turn in pros. Um, we're, you know, and the guy who we're publishing with, he's pretty cool to the fact that we want to get – right now it's going to be 70 okay. artists. Mm-hmm. We want to get 70 of the best, <clears throat> no filler, no filler stories. Um so, yes, uh, spring or summer of 2019, I think. Okay. So I just, yeah, I'm, I'm just cranking out as many as I can do. Are, are there some artists that aren't going to make the cut when you say no filler, <laughs> unfortunately? Yeah. yeah, unfortunately. And uh, who's who's on your wish list that you, you, you haven't nailed down yet, can you say? I mean, well, yeah, I've, I've actually done a lot of the, the people I wanted to get. Um, like Wayne Kramer was just a great one from you know, MC5. Sure. That was one where his wife – contacted me after I sent in a request, not even knowing who I was really sending the request to. It was yep. just like some generic thing. She said, oh, Wayne's available. Do you want to do it in a half hour? So that was great. <clears throat> but now it's uh, David Crosby looks like it might happen. Oh, cool. I just know he'll have Bonko <laughs> stories. Um, and, yeah, now it's kind of just top dogs. I mean, you know, in my in my grandiose visions, like Bono or Metallica or yeah. – Foo Fighters. I'd love to speak to Dave Grohl. Yeah. God, he's such a good, great storyteller. Yeah. I know he'd have fun with it, too. Sure. But um, – He probably might have too many to count. I know. <laughs> yeah. There's been a, quite a few artists who just said, oh, where do we start? Yeah, exactly. You know? That's very cool. Well, let's get uh, let's get a little, little bit of your background. Now, you're, where are you originally from? Nebraska? Omaha, Nebraska. And then how did you uh, – did you make your way – how did you get into the pop culture music journalism business? Um, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I was not the driven kid, right. you know, like the young go-getter starting his own zine or something like that. Oh uh, no, I was a lazy pothead and a drunk. 
throughout uh, high school and college, basically. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, which was, isn't a bad prerequisite for what you're doing, right? <laughs> you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll be a screenwriter. <laughs> right. And that was kind of the goal. Of course, you can't really just do that, right? Uh, but yeah, Quentin Tarantino was a hero. Um, and then, uh, you know, Fear and Loathing came out. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the movie. I think my yes yeah, senior year of college. So, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, senior year of high school. Couldn't really have come out at a worse time because I'm like, oh, I'll just yeah, man, I'll I'll <laughs> be like this Gonzo writer dude. Again, can't really just do that. Um, so college, you know, I, I did it, but I all I could ever do was English or writing. Right. <laughs> Everything Where, else. Where'd was, you go to school? I started uh, Holy Cross in in South Bend, Indiana. Okay. Which is right. It's kind of the brother school of Notre Dame. So, yeah, I did what I could do there with uh, English and stuff like that, but never wrote for the paper, um, which I think a lot of people probably did, right. journalists. So, yeah, I just had um, talent that I knew was in there, but I had no idea how to really express it in a way that would work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did an internship. I went to DePaul after that, and I was living in Chicago. did an internship with uh, – Chicago Sun-Times writer named Rob Elder, who's a great guy and really was the uh, inspiration for me to get this book going. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we stayed in touch all these years. So there was a, there was a really cool um, art magazine in Chicago called Stop Smiling. And uh, I uh, got in touch with them through Rob. Um, had no idea really what to pitch or even what I was doing essentially. But I just right. said, well, I'm going to see Yola Tango. Um in two days, I can do a review on that if you want. So they said, sure, go for it. So I sort of did. It was like a split single. I did a album review slash live review. And they liked it. And ever since then, and it, it wasn't, I think I knew it might work because when I sat down to write it, I didn't um, get blocked or it right. all just came very naturally. Um, so I thought, yeah, this might be a, something I can do. All right. Did you, have any, <laughs> did you have any writers that you, you know, looked up to at the time or inspired you, you know, from Rolling Stone or Spin or... Well, you know. I mean, it was, you know, it really was a different time back then because that literally was pre-internet, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, not literally, but at DePaul, you know, we we still weren't really using computers all that much or the internet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would, I would obviously pour through Rolling Stone and Spin, but, yeah, only like Rob Sheffield stuck out. Um, yeah. Trying to think who else. Uh, Mark Spitz. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it wasn't like you could really keep up with someone's byline all that great, right. you know. Um, um, yeah, no, I was more of, of, of a novel guy, I guess. Um, Brett Easton Ellis was kind of my hero, mm-hmm. and again, it was more of that nihilistic stuff. And right, <laughs> I should have been smarter to think, okay, let's those guys are cool, but let's not try and be <laughs> them, right? Um, and that's someone you've interviewed too, right? Yeah, right. Brett and I have kind of become buddies. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, um, we're going on our fourth. Uh, for uh, Playboy coming up. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I, yes, I was, I didn't know what I really wanted to do or how to get there. So then Chicago, I just kept kind of doing stuff for Stop Smiling, worked up to Pop Matters, got to be an editor there. Um, doesn't pay shit. Right. I mean, it was bad. No pay back then. So I was working at a record store doing something stupid on the side. Um Finally, I realized I'm, you know, I was 28 or something. I said, oh boy, I got to do something. So 
I moved to L.A. and uh, took a music um, PR job there. Who was that with? It was called Ink Tank PR. Okay. It's uh, not around anymore, but... Did they have some marquee names at the time? Um, oddly, uh, the woman who owned it, uh, Juliana, well, I won't say her last name, Juliana, uh, that was her project, and uh, she started to get into more uh, TV stars. So all of a sudden, Carson Daly was the big client, and that's literally when The Voice started. Okay. So she was off in Carson land, and I was essentially left to run the place. Everything else. No idea what I was doing. <laughs> Again, you know. Uh, so, yeah, Carson was just kind of the big thing. And uh, Ink Tank is no more. She went on to do some great stuff um, with big labels. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that 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 job wasn't uh, – <laughs> it was just too much too soon. Good learning experience or more wasted – I don't mean to say wasted time, but yeah, for well, lack of a was, better. <laughs> yeah, and again, it was I got into it because, you know, when you're a writer, you, you just build up more and more PR contacts. Right. So I would see the press releases they'd write, and I thought, hell, I could do this. Sure. So that part was fine, but yeah, I mean, it was a good, it was a good experience in that, in that sense, because I got to experience it on the other side. And man, it's frustrating. You know, you're just constantly trying to get you know writers to say, just can you give me one star, like do something, write anything, I don't care, just something we can show our clients. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. When when you were on that side of the fence, when you were on the PR side of the fence, yeah, it was difficult because I, I, I had you know I kind of had to beg. My writer friends to do stuff. Right, right, okay. So yes, it, it was. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It was just not the best thing. Right. Yeah. So uh, soon enough, you segue to. I mean, your your resume is fantastic. Between Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, Spin, Esquire, Playboy, Billboard, Chicago Sun Times. I mean, it's. When did is that been four or five last four or five years of, you know, just. You know, building, building, building. Yeah, I, I think I really knew I had to get serious when that uh, ink tank PR job didn't work out. Right. So again, I was just sort of thinking, okay, I'm going to give it one honest shot, make try and make some money doing this. So I got in touch with the LA Weekly, and uh, that was really, I guess, the first quote unquote big publication. Right. But yeah, everything kind of took off from there. LA Weekly led to the Onions AV Club. Oh right, um, did that for years, and yeah, everything's just sort of built on top of uh, one another. Right. Yeah. What are some of the highlights of your, you know, people you've interviewed so far? I mean, you've, you've got some big names. You got it, you know, yeah, very diverse. <clears throat> Westerberg was definitely uh, the best, right? And I think probably the best story I've ever told. Now I, I forgot to ask this question earlier. You had so much. You had such a long interview, and I've read the interview, and it's condensed. Mm-hmm. It's it's just. A, is there anything you wish you could have put in there that it's not, or um, just seems such a shame? Like, is there's there's got to be some stuff in there that's right? You know, to the diehard. Lot, well, because you know, I I would leave it. I would leave the tape rolling, mm-hmm. and then we would just kind of bullshit. And that stuff was the the most fun. Right. Like, I was playing songs for him of bands that I think you might like. Well, that I thought were inspired by okay. him, yep. and he would kind of listen. And, uh, I played this band Beach Slang for him, who I love, mm-hmm. and you know, you kind of cock his ear. He always cocks his ear when he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and he said, I, I think, well, did he write this on a piano? And, <laughs> you know, that stuff was really fun, and, you know, he played songs for me, and then we had lunch and stuff like that. I really liked those moments. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. 
Um, out of all the artists you've been exposed to and have met, do you notice anything? This kind of comes back to the show's theme of rockonomics. Do you notice anything about the way they live in, in terms of, I think, from the outside looking in, everyone thinks it's so it's a glamorous life and mm-hmm. fame and fortune. But in, in reality, they're all basically blue-collar folks, you know, carrying yeah. instruments instead of, right. you know, blowtorches. But <clears throat> is that – is there anything that went, once you got into it, you kind of noticed that, you know, what's what's behind the curtain? Or what sure. did you see behind the curtain? Yeah. Um, a lot of strife and uh, struggle for them. Um Especially, you know, since you can only really make money on tours now in right. March. Um, I worked at a venue uh, for years in L.A. as kind of a side night job called the Echoplex. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a life of loading in, waiting, playing, and shipping out in the night. Right. I mean, I, I certainly couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, if you have any sort of sleep problems, <laughs> sure. oh, I'd be, a, I'd be a disaster. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of shitty food and... I mean, again, like, yeah, I think, uh, I, of course I haven't interviewed Beyonce or a pop, mm-hmm. a big pop star like that, that I can think of. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're so, uh, managed, you know, micromanaged, right. I'm sure down to like the littlest things, like mm-hmm. every little piece of food and you know, nothing's left a chance. Right. So even that, that honestly seems a bit worse to me. I would not want that lifestyle. Yeah. Seems very cold and sterile. That makes me think of uh, <laughs> out of everyone, Katy Perry. She, she had that movie out. I forget what it's called, but it's just like seeing her on the treadmill. You know that was all right. You got forty minutes. Oh yeah. You know, so I'll have thirty minutes on the treadmill, and then you got to go eat, and then you got to you know. It's right. Like, then you got to go to this appearance. Or yeah. Do that. Doesn't seem like a a very fun life. Sure. Well, that was uh, – we talked about it last time, that P. Diddy interview I did. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't thrilled to be speaking to me. But man, he seemed miserable. Yeah. Just, well, you, you were saying the P, that this, the, you were saying you got criticized by his people after they read it because you said the people around him seemed kind of yeah. depressed. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it was, uh, it was essentially just a puff piece. Um, I was writing for Chicagoist, you know, all the ist, like yep. LAist. Yep. They're kind of dead now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, my ed- or the editor said, "Do you want to go talk to him at the Hard Rock Hotel about his vodka, Ciroc vodka?" Right, right. So you know, I was all about it. Said, yeah, sure. So I think I got there around 11 a.m. and I didn't get to speak to him till like 4:15. Mm-hmm. So it killed a whole day. And I mean, they were kind of nice, and you know, they they just kept saying. Uh, you know, hey, man, just wait. You know, Mr. Combs will be right down. And I just literally left and, like, got lunch. And they said, we'll call you when we're ready. So, yeah, <laughs> they give you one of those beepers from, like, a, yeah, like a Friday. Maybe Tuesdays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of bummed around. And, um, when yeah, when he finally came, he had a cold. And it was just a pointless interview, basically. Because I, I had a, pre, a pre-list of uh, questions I had to submit. Right, right. And I tried to get a little off those. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, you can yeah. find it online. But yeah, when I wrote it, like uh, I, I wrote about how his whole posse just seems to be glued to phones, and their life, you know, revolves around yeah, one yeah, man. Sure. Which I don't know, man. I have a problem with authority. I don't like. Yeah. I don't like the Pope. I don't like any of that <laughs> stuff. You know. So uh, yeah, it just seemed like a very bizarre lifestyle. And again, that was whoosh, 
2008. So imagine, right. I imagine it's only gotten worse. Yeah, sure. Gosh, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the flip side of that, uh, you know, your, your, your highlights, what have, do you have any lowlights that come to mind? I know what you want. <laughs> <laughs> do, you any, do you have any low lights you're willing to? Uh, yeah. Okay. Divulge. Here we go. Um, so this one, uh, so I was doing a lot of work for the LA Weekly. They they really seemed to like me, and I was uh, doing show reviews and interviews. Um, so I'd always been I've always been a huge Ryan Adams fan. Yep. <clears throat> way back to Whiskey Town. Um. So I thought this would just be kind of an easy no-brainer. Um, I said, uh, the editor at the time at the Weekly, uh, he was really into hip-hop, so he didn't love the idea. Uh, but he said, yeah, you know, if you want to do it, fine, we'll run it. So I didn't love that. <laughs> but I was just like, yes, I, I, I've always wanted to interview him. Right. So I remember it took about six weeks to set the whole thing up, and it was a real headache. And I didn't really care, but this plays later into the story. So, you know, I finally got him on the line. Um, well, okay, a few things. He had just come out with an album. Uh, I, I might be botching the title, Ashes and Fire. Right. Uh, and a lot of the song titles were kind of about, um, just felt like very much an outdoorsy kind of record. Right. Um, and he had just moved to L.A. from New York. I had read he had just gotten sober, and he had just... Um, gotten engaged to Mandy Moore. Right. So n- none of those subjects were ever told, uh, told to me, do not talk about that sure. stuff. It was just, it was an open forum as far as I was, as far as I could tell. <clears throat> so I think around the third question, I, I sort of asked a few questions about the record. And, um, I said, uh, you know, you and Mandy Moore seem like, uh, complete opposites on the surface. Uh, what is it about her that made you want to spend the rest of your life with her? Of course, I, I meant that as, tell me, you know, how did you fall in love with her? What is so right. special about this woman? And by no means I was saying, Judgmental. from what I can tell, I don't like her. Right. You know, convince me why you married her. <laughs> Sell me Mandy Moore. Yeah, right. You know, I have no problem with her. I liked her in Saved, that movie. Um, so, yeah, right away he just said, you should know I never answer questions about my wife. Okay. Tried to move on to something else. Um didn't go well. Again, I don't have the transcript in front of me, but it never I could never write the train, essentially. It just right. kept getting worse and worse, and it was this horrible sinking feeling because then he got kind of combative with me. Right. And, oh, boy, I, I forget where it went off the cliff, but I think I said, what do you say to critics who have accused you of being um, overly prolific? Right. Because, you know, he cranks out a lot of music. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to stop you right there. You know, like, how dare you ask about my wife and sobriety? And, like, did you even listen to the record? And I said, yes, man. I, I just – these are honestly questions I'm interested in. <clears throat> so, essentially, it, it ended with, you know what? Let's agree to pick this up later. Like, it's this is over. Right. <clears throat> so, I felt really bad. Uh, I was really shaken. That had never happened. Um, talked to his people, the LA Weekly. And I got him on the line the next day. And I opened by saying, hey, look, Ryan, I'm a huge fan, man. Like, I did not mean to attack you or for that interview to go that way that it went. Mm-hmm. And he said, first thing he said was, you know, man, you know what, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I was having a bad day. <clears throat> so we did another 20-minute uh, interview. And 
when I, when I submitted it, um, I said, oh, yeah, like, you know, Ryan really did kind of snap at me in the first one. My editor said, oh, really? <laughs> Boy. Again, I just left it out before. I just said, look, uh, that interview didn't go well. So, you know, my editor said, no, 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 go back in and add all that other stuff in. <clears throat> so I was just young and dumb and um, wanted to please my right. editor. So I did that and then woke up to a shitstorm. Um uh, you know, my editor, he ran it. I looked at it, it looked good, but well, I'm sorry. It looked like shit. It looked like someone had massacred the piece. Right. The, the headline, uh, I forget my original headline, but the headline they ran, which I didn't even submit was we managed to really piss off Ryan Adams. Right. <clears throat> so it looked like that was my intention from the start. I had an agenda, um, which I think was really what set him off. Mm -hmm. So he called, he, I think he called the weekly and said, I'm going to write a rebuttal. And at this point I'm like, Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying, Oh fuck. And the LA weekly's were like, yes. Oh, they loved it. Cause they <laughs> were, yeah, I will sign the LA weekly at that point. Which is, uh, I mean, it's unfortunate. Yeah. They were all about clickbait. Mm -hmm. Um, they didn't care what it was. They would sell anyone down the river and they let me take, I don't know. What's a non cliche. I got, I got royally fucked by that. Right. Um, because I was trying to explain my case, my editor said, look, I don't have time for this. That's literally what he said to me. I said, dude, like, my burgeoning, hopeful career is kind of on the line here. Right. So, yeah, Ryan wrote this whole retort saying how, again, I had an agenda and uh, uh, I misquoted things. And I said, look, not a single word of Ryan of Mr. Adams' transcript has been altered in any way. Right. What I... Uh, what I had to do when he, my editor said to go back and add this stuff, I had to condense a few questions. Sure. So Ryan made he's, you know, he said, well, you, he didn't ask that. He didn't say it like that. I said, well, I did. And I said, you know what? Do you want to just hear the audio? I will post it on the weekly. And at that point, everyone shut up. And then, uh, a day later I heard, yeah, uh, you're officially banned from village voice media right. and, uh, and LA weekly. And I said, well, hey, man, this is fucked up. Well, who leads that charge? Uh, Was it the, po the power of Ryan and his people? Well. Or did you get thrown under the bus? I think, yes, they probably, I don't know this for a fact, but someone said to the Village Voice in New York, some person I never even dealt with, right. like, you better, you better fire that kid or do whatever, um, unless you want to work with our other artists. Right. So, yeah, that was it. And uh, afterwards, I was just so kind of thrown and just disgusted by the whole thing. Not so much Ryan at all because – Sure. Um, but, yeah, just the way the Weekly did it, I'm like, oh, this is the ugly side of this right. business. Have you know. ever told your, the story before? Have you ever got your side of the story out before? Well, I wrote a retort too in mm -hmm. the Weekly. Right. But it was like sandwiched after Ryan Adams thing. So <laughs> anyone with an attention span of like, you know, whatever is not even going to go to that – fourth page right 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 so yeah i did but i didn't post the audio because i just kind of wanted to let it die to be honest okay and yeah a couple years <laughs> last year i finally we made amends um yeah how so well <laughs> just because i wanted to see if i could do it um there was a new editor at la weekly i pitched a story sure enough go for it got okay. print, got you know <clears throat> got printed so I, you know, that just kind of made me feel better on a level. But I talked to his managers, and I, you know, I kind of explained again what happened, 
And I said, look, I would love to just put this to rest because it honestly weighs on me. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I take full responsibility for how all this went down because I should have stopped it. One of my editors said, you know, add this and add that. And they understand, they understand that Ryan, um, uh, doesn't have a history of doing this, but he can be combative. Sure. Sure. So, yeah. Um, all right. Before we get to, uh, you know, we end every show with the same five questions, but one thing I forgot to hit you up on last time was, uh, you went record shopping with Mark Marin for something. Yeah. I, uh, so, uh, I started a column for the AV club pop, called pop shop, mm-hmm. um, where I went record and DVD shopping with, um, musicians and directors and actors. So I think he was probably the fourth one I did and I thought it was, you know, it was pretty cool. He was sort of, he was Mark Marin at that point, you know, <laughs> what the fuck WTF was big. So we went to his favorite record store, Permanent Records in LA, and um, yeah, he picked out six or seven records. Yeah. So we discussed them and a lot about music in his life, and uh, yeah, you know, he's a cool guy. Um, it's funny he picked out ACDC Power Age, and oh, he, yeah. he just did a he just did a uh, for those who follow him, he just did a I don't know if it was a benefit show, but they played they played the entire. Power Age oh, album, really? start to finish, and he's been playing out live recently yeah. with a guitar. One of his buddies has been dragging him out. So. <laughs> I saw I saw a picture of him with the guitar, but yeah, yeah. funny coincidence. Yeah, I, oh, I'm I'm not going to remember. I think he had a Mother's of Invention pick. Yeah, ACDC. Um, but yeah, no, he's he's definitely got a depth of musical knowledge, obviously, and yeah. he's you know I think he's always into exploring stuff, which is cool. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, Let's do the final five, but I, I want to get you back when the book comes out. And I also, sure. I mean, this is more music oriented, but you do a lot of pop culture stuff that I was, I was interested in hearing about, but uh, we're going to, we're running out of time. So let's do the final five. Uh, first question, which I, I know the answers to now since we are, oh, yeah. but uh, <laughs> gonna, I feel like I'm going to choke. <laughs> now the second it's the most prized uh, material possession that is maybe music oriented or something that maybe been given to you by an artist. Yeah. Or, Got it. I remember this one. Uh, yeah, so I interviewed Nick Cave um, when Dig Lazarus Dig record came out. Uh, boy, two thousand eight. Yeah, it's been a minute. Google. So, yeah, so that was one of my big first assignments, and he was at this kind of small hotel in Chicago, and it was cool. I'm not, I was not a Nick Cave devotee, so I think I was a little less intimidated by right. certain people. So I was just kind of flinging it at him, man. I, you know, tell me about like sobriety and all this stuff and the depths of your using and, and, uh, so yeah, right around the end, he, he, he said it funny. He, he was being funny, but he said, you're so fucking concerned with my peace of mind. More of my bad Australian accent. <laughs> you're so fucking concerned with my peace of mind. Uh, and I said, yeah, I'm just trying to get a, you know a feel for where your head's at these days. And if you're, you know, where, if you found happiness, <clears throat> so, you know, we hugged and everything. And he called me back in the room. It's this other, uh, I remember it was someone for like the Chicago reader, but their eyes were just like saucers. You could tell they were just so nervous. <laughs> and he called me back in and said, uh, he gave me this plastic ducky with the Chicago Cubs hat, right. like a rubber ducky for the bath. And he said, I'm not really sure I'm looking for peace. So I thought that was cool. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So I still got the ducky. I like he that. He travels with me. <laughs> got to bring it next time. I'll get a snapshot. Of oh, it. yeah. 
Um, question number two is if I give you a million dollars for to give to a charity, which one charity gets it? Uh, <clears throat> it's got to be some with animals. Um, it's, it's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Do you uh, have any animals? Do you have uh, dogs or cats? Yeah, I got I got a cat named Boris. All right, <clears throat> but I'm I'm sort of you know people talk about being empaths. Am I pronouncing that right? Empaths. I'm not sure. Like empathy, right? If you're an empath, you okay. really feel someone's suffering or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with humans, I don't have that. <laughs> but with animals, yes, it kills me. I can't watch. Whoosh. <laughs> any sort of documentary that's uh, about animal cruelty or something. Right. So yeah, give it all to the people uh, snuffing out poachers or whatever. I'm cool with that. This is coming from a fisherman. Catch and release fisherman. Okay. But still, oh, you're we- still scaring the shit out of them. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, but they're probably, you know, you're like, <laughs> it's like that in Saving Private Ryan. It's like, earn this. And throw them back in the water. <laughs> yeah. It's like a badge of honor that got caught by me. <laughs> Okay, question number three is what your what would your walk up music be to the pearly gates? Yeah, I wanted to come up with a better one than I had. Uh, oh yeah, how about Lawyers, Guns, and Money by Warren? Zeeb? That's awesome. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that, that may be one of the best ones I've heard so far. Yeah, I'll just go out in a blaze of fuck yous. <laughs> <laughs> um, and number four is what's on? Um, I'm sorry, what's stuck on repeat in hell? Oh yeah. I, okay, I, I honestly think about this a lot because I used to do this uh, column for the AV Club called Hate Song. Right. Where I would get artists and their least favorite song. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be uh, Aerosmith Dream On. Okay. I, I just, Is that just because it's been overplayed for so no. long? Or just, I mean, you, know, from if you heard it for the first time? Yeah, even like, as uh. a kid. I'm like, this is such a downer and <laughs> builds to that just, oh, shrieking chorus. Oh, I just hate that song. And then. Uh, Anything by the Stray Cats I, or uh, Brian Setzer. Okay. He ruined that Simpsons where um, Homer goes to Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. I hated that Brian Setzer was there. I, yeah, I – oh, and that faux kind of rockabilly thing. Ugh. That's very funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Uh, best live concert you've seen? Uh, <clears throat> uh, it was two – or no, it was one week – in 2003, uh, Ween uh, played, and then the Flaming Lips played two nights later. Um, and yeah, that was the Flaming Lips when they kind of just started doing all the confetti and the craziness. Okay. And I, you know, again, it was sort of pre-internet, so I didn't know what they were up to. That was a, like a mind blower. Where was that at? <clears throat> um, the Canopy Club in Urbana, Illinois. Okay. So is that U of I, the college? <clears throat> Again, man, those venues were small. So I was going to say pretty, in, not, yeah, maybe not like, intimate, but not yeah. giant. Yeah, and Ween wasn't like the touring big juggernaut they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was. They were kind of intimate shows, and whoo, that put me on a path, man. Okay, well, quickly, last question. I gave it to you last time, but I'm I'm naive to Ween, and I know that's one of your. We you didn't know, even talk about Ween this time. I know, but I want you to give me. <laughs> I want you to give me the quick sell on Ween. Okay, uh, what I always say is um, they look like guys who know how to change tires. Um, for some reason, that just means so much to me because I can tell it's authentic. Um, right. And they're not afraid to look goofy or be silly. Mm-hmm. Um, but their love songs are so heartfelt. Their weird songs are very weird. Everything they do is like 100%. 
and they can tackle any genre. For God's sakes, they have a country album. Okay, if you plug them into whatever, um, you know, the Spotify or the iTunes, what else do you get? Like, if you like Ween, yeah. you like... A lot of my stuff, like Flaming Lips, okay, Beck, Early Beck, mm-hmm. um, Primus, okay, stuff like that. Interesting. Kind of right. crazy alt-rock from the 90s. Excellent. All right. Well, Drew, thank you for doing this again. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's actually do it again when the book comes out. Sure. And uh, like I said, we'll get into more of your pop culture stuff. Yeah. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. A big thanks to Drew Fortune, who has become my third guest to come in and re-record due to technical difficulties. But in my defense, this time it was not pilot error, but some faulty equipment. So I should be exonerated on this one. We'll see. We'll see. Regardless, we'll be back next week with the personal assistant to a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. So please join us for that and tell your friends. A lot of interesting stuff in that conversation. And as always, subscribe, leave us a rating, and comment on iTunes. Once you subscribe, the show will be waiting on your advice when you wake up every Tuesday morning. Okay, that concludes the Rockonomics Podcast, Episode 23. See you next time for Episode 24. Good night, Cleveland.